Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 31, He Gave Us the Best. What was that inscription above Jesus' cross all about? Why did Jesus give his mother to John? And what was the significance of water and blood flowing from Jesus' body? This week, Steve looks at five aspects of John's depiction of the crucifixion. So tonight we talk about the crucifixion. And we're coming now to the culmination of this clash between darkness and light, the theme that we've talked about for a year. And uh, we're right at the climax of that right now. Uh, John's pointed at this from the beginning. The interesting thing is I've really studied the crucifixion in John's gospel uh, is how many differences there are from the synoptic accounts. And it was very tempting to want to add, oh yeah, but there was this and there was that, but we're studying John. (laughs) So there's really quite a few differences. Uh, Many things are not found in John that are found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's a long list, but things that really jumped out is uh, Simon, uh, the Cyrene, uh, Jesus' prayer for forgiveness for his executioners, um, that their darkness came over the land, uh, the classic where he quoted uh, Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? <clears throat> the rending of the temple curtain, the reaction of the centurion, surely this was the Son of God. So why is this the case? Because this is John's eyewitness account. And remember, we've shared many times, he is not chronicling uh, every single detail. Remember, he says, I suppose all the books in the world couldn't contain if I wrote everything. Uh, So he is being very specific from chapter 1 all the way through as to what he includes. But don't forget, this is an eyewitness account. You know, Caiaphas had said, uh, and these are some a couple of verses that are kind of building up to that climax. Remember, we talked about John eleven fifty. Caiaphas said, "Don't you realize that it's better for you that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed?" And and he was in kind of a religious slash political debate, but he prophesied and didn't even know it. He was the high priest that year. Jesus said in John twelve thirty two, and I. When I am lifted up from the earth, shall draw all people to myself. Um, this becomes quite thematic through what we're going to look at tonight. You know, what Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount, he now demonstrates to the full in the crucifixion. It's, it, there isn't a stronger, uh, there's, there's nothing like it to exemplify what he said the kingdom is like. So, Uh, One of the writers I like very much, Raymond Brown, wrote about a, I don't know, 1,800-word commentary on John almost 50 years ago, but it's it's been really helpful to me for many, many years. Um, And and I'm going to use his his five kind of uh, subdivisions for tonight, five key episodes, because I think they give us a terrific uh, structure for looking at what's pretty complicated. Uh, The first one is the royal inscription over Jesus' head at the cross, uh, the seamless tunic, the third one, Jesus gives his mother to John, the fourth one, the famous, uh, it is finished, and uh, number five, when uh, water and blood flow from his side when uh, he's hit with the spear. So let's, uh, let's begin, we're in the second half of verse 16 through 25, <coughs> excuse me. We've just finished what we talked about last week. His, it wasn't even really a trial, but uh, a kangaroo court. And now, therefore, they took Jesus away. Carrying his own cross. There's the first difference, you see. Carrying his own cross, he went out to what is called Skull Place, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side, with Jesus in the middle. Pilate also had a sign lettered and put on the cross. The inscription was, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Don't write King of the Jews, 
but that he said that I am king of the Jews. Pilate replied, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, a part for each uh, soldier. They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but let's toss for it to see who gets it. They did this to fulfill the scripture that says, they divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. And this is what the soldiers did. So, unlike the synoptics, he carries his own cross the whole way. We talked about this a few weeks ago when I talked about the cost of following Jesus. Golgotha, the the place of the skull, uh, was a rocky hill outside the city walls. And I believe, though it is historically true, there's also an underlying meaning that following Jesus will always take us outside the walls of convention, of people's expectations. Uh, It'll take us into a place of rejection and misunderstanding. Now the synoptics tell us a little bit more about these other two. John just says, and two others. We talked about this last week. People that are not central to his point just come in and go out without explanation. Um, And uh, in fact, the synoptics say he was crucified between two robbers. This is actually a colloquialism that really meant political insurgents, in case you care, because Barabbas was called a robber, really. He was a political insurgent. But for John, these guys are just not vital to where he's going in his narrative. So let's begin to go through the first of these five episodes. The first is the royal inscription. All the way through John's account, Jesus has avoided ever calling himself king. Remember, as close as he gets to being cornered, Pilate says, So are you king? And Jesus says, Well, you say so. He won't identify himself. But now, in John's Gospel, it's being openly proclaimed at a a key place where he says, many people walked by. Uh, This sign, uh, when he put the sign up there, it was Pilate's getting back at the Jewish leaders because they pushed him and pushed him into something he didn't want to do. And this was his way of getting back. The Jewish leaders were offended, they were outraged, and this is exactly what Pilate wanted. Um, But at the same time, Pilate is not saying he's the king. He's saying it with such cynicism. He's expressing cynicism not only toward Christ, but toward, toward Judaism, toward the Jewish leaders. It's an ironic proclamation. He doesn't believe it any more than the Jewish leaders do. But now look at what's happened. This inscription now stands in all of history. Though Jesus never said, I'm the king, It is now a proclamation through all of history of his kingship. And it's written in the three major languages of the time. Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Hebrew, which, by the way, was really Aramaic. Hebrew, uh, really classical Hebrew, was not spoken since about 450 BC. But but Aramaic, it was a variation. At any rate, that's probably more information than anybody but me cares about. Um, The Hebrew was the local language. Uh, Latin is the official language of government, and Greek is the universal language, like, like English is. We do a lot of work in India, and there's 400 languages in India, and we, we have to get translators who speak the local, we'll call it tribal language, and then um, uh, uh, English is actually the, the, the language of commerce and so forth, and Hindi is the official language. It's exactly parallel. So what's John saying with this episode? He's clearly saying that Jesus is now announced as the Messiah, as the Christ of the whole world. John has transformed Pilate's charge into a, for all time and for all of creation, the proclamation of who the Christ really is. Okay? I think that's pretty straightforward. The second episode is the seamless tunic. 
And the background, there's really two backgrounds. I think if we have time, we're going to finish with Isaiah 53. But the first background for this entire passion story is Psalm 22. And uh, it's a story, David is prophetic. He's suddenly, he's seeing across time and he chronicles public humiliation and mockery and pain and terrible, terrible thirst that really comes out in Psalm 22 in the piercing of Jesus' hands and feet and the casting of lots for his clothing. He said, a band of evil men men has encircled me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Probably most of us know that psalm and and know that it it foreshadows uh, prophetically the crucifixion. But let's go a little bit deeper. John is specifically describing Jesus' tunic. They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. That's a lot of detail. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but uh, toss for it to see who gets it. And they did this to fulfill what the scripture says. They divided my clothes among themselves. They cast lots for my clothing. A few points. First of all, The high priest's garment was woven from a single thread. It goes all the way back to Exodus. John is alluding to Christ as the eternal high priest. I love the way every detail matters so much with John. Isn't it amazing? Uh, John is saying that not only is Jesus the true king of Israel, what was proclaimed over his head, Uh, the true king of Israel and all nations, he is also accomplishing his high priestly ministry at the very hour of his greatest pain and humiliation. I was thinking about this just an hour ago when I was out walking. This incredible dialectic, this incredible paradox. We'll talk about it a little more later, but I was just so aware that what, what seems the worst disaster, this possibly can't be, is exactly what God uses. So, John is saying to us, he's now, he's the eternal forever high priest. Writer of Hebrews picks this up in chapter 9, I think it is. Um, And he's also saying that he is accomplishing this priestly ministry when? At the very hour of his greatest pain and humiliation, in the midst of looking completely defeated, that's when he is accomplishing his high priestly ministry. Isn't that amazing? His death is an action for the sake of others. Uh, There's an intercessory function to what he's doing. Remember, uh, we looked a couple weeks ago at the high priestly prayer, John 17, verse 19. He says, and for their sakes, I sanctify myself or consecrate myself so that they may be sanctified in truth. The second thing about this seamless tunic, the church fathers saw something else in it. They saw an image of the indestructible unity of the church. The other garments were divided. In fact, they were divided into four. And the church fathers saw that as the four compass points. As as John was symbolically saying, what happens here on on Golgotha is going to go all to the the known world. Um, But at the center, the church remains united and strong. This unity theme is a continuation of the high priestly prayer we talked about a couple of weeks ago where he says to the Father that they may be one just as you and I are one. So the church fathers always saw this as, as, along with the priestly function, this unity thing. And John is getting right at that. Standing, Let's go on, verse 25. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. And after this, when Jesus knew that everything was now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. 
a jar full of sour wine, some say vinegar, um, was sitting there. So they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on hyssop and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Well, we have quite a, quite a little bit to unravel here. Let's look first at the episode of Jesus saying to Mary, Woman, here's your son. John, here's your mother. Let's look at this. All four Gospels speak of the women who were present at the foot of the cross. But uniquely here, John is also with them. The other disciples have scattered, and the women, and in this case, John, uh, the beloved disciple I am assuming is John. I'm, I'm assuming it because I've read and read and read, and I've come down on the side that he is John. Um, but the women and John refused to leave Jesus alone. Now, we've all of us heard preaching, all those men were just scared and they ran away and they weren't loyal. And there's truth to that. But the women, they were courageous and they never left his side. And there's truth to that. But there is a political reality. Because practically speaking, the women were in no danger of being arrested. Women were not arrested unless they were specifically uh, you know, caught in a violent crime or something. They, they weren't arrested. But the men were in danger of being arrested. So we see John standing there, and I don't know which it is. Either we're seeing the triumph of his love over his fear, or he might simply have been too young. History tells us he was much younger than the others, and maybe he was just seen more as a lad and, and, and not in danger. I don't know. Um, now, Jesus gives his mother to John, and there's a whole bunch of levels to this. So here we go. Firstly, Jesus, in the midst of his own agony, continues to care for his loved ones. One of Jesus' final acts is his arranging an adoption. Um, from now on, John will be Mary's adopted son. John will care for Mary. From that hour, the disciple took her into his home, is what the verse says. Literally, by the way, it doesn't say he took her into his home. It says from that hour, he took her into his own. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I think it speaks about a deep unity. He received Mary into his entire life at the deepest level. This is consistent with John's message to the church. Secondly, this is only the second time that Mary appears in this gospel. Does anybody remember the first time? The wedding in Cana. That's right. Exactly right. Uh, the two scenes are linked together by John. Mary, both times, is addressed as woman. And as I shared with you now many months ago, woman <coughs> is a sacred term. It reflected deep respect and deep affection. It was a term of great dignity. You know, nowadays if you say woman, yeah, it's, it's a whole different deal, right? Mm -hmm. The wedding feast at Cana is an anticipation of the final and great marriage feast of the Lamb. All of these things are intended in what John writes. Um... What happened there at the wedding feast? New wine, right? And uh, new wine that Jesus is going to give. And what is this new wine? Abundant life, eternal life. Those are the John's two favorite terms. I love Isaiah 55, 1. Come, ho, come to the waters. Everybody who's thirsty, come by without money. Remember that? So what was a prophetic sign at the wedding of Cana in chapter 2? is now a reality. Now it is unfolding right before John's eyes. The third significance to this episode, the early church saw in the woman both literally Mary herself, but they also saw John speaking, writing prophetically of the church and the bride. So they saw Mary's role symbolically 
as the mother of all disciples in every generation. Fourthly, the beloved disciple, John, is both an historical figure and a type for all discipleship that will never stop existing both in and beyond time. So those two are very, very important types. The church and disciples. From now on, Mary and John will be one, just as the Father and the Son are one. This is a continuation of John's theme of unbrokenness and unity that he introduced in the seamless tunic. Sixthly, Mary is often seen as the new Eve. She represents a new kind of humanity, the people of Christ and his spirit. This exchange is so significant that it is only now that Jesus knew everything had been accomplished. Now let me say this. Some of us come from a Catholic or Orthodox background, either in this room or people that are watching. And uh, some of us are still in that background. Some of us have moved into more uh, evangelical or Protestant uh, thinking and structure. And because of a, a fear of Mary worship, I think we've gone too far the other way. That we don't, we don't honor this absolutely unique uh, she is called blessed, right? Luke 1 and 2. Uh, Luke 1 especially. She is absolutely in a unique way called blessed. She uniquely is the one, the womb that the Spirit came to, that the Father chose, the Father and the Son chose for the Son to be <coughs> And so I think we're going to touch on two things tonight. In both cases, I think perhaps we've gone a little too far the other way. Some of us, I'm not saying everybody, but because of because of what I said, whether it's a fear of or a <coughs> pulling back from what could be perceived as, as Mary worship. But I want to tell you that what I'm saying here is based on centuries and centuries of tradition. From the earliest, by the second century, by the second century, when there was just one church and they were still meeting in houses like we are, and it was an organic church, by the second century they recognized John is saying something very significant. And remember, um, Paul talks about the new Adam in Romans, right? We're going to get to that a little bit later, maybe, maybe. But there's a there's a connection here that she is seen as the new Eve. She represents this new kind of humanity. Okay, everybody, still with me? All right. Shook up all my Calvinist friends. Number four. Boy, you guys are serious tonight. Number four. The cry of thirst. And then he says, it is finished. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there. So they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on hyssop and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. The first point. It's only in John's account that Jesus says, I'm thirsty. <coughs> Scripturally, all the way through, you'll see it in, in of course, uh, Psalm 22, but you'll see it in, uh, in 63 and, and, and lots of places. I didn't know I was going to go down that road. Um, scripturally, thirst implies anguish, loneliness, being out in the wilderness. All right? John continues to bring in scriptural allusions into this account. Jesus was obviously literally thirsty. Uh, and this fulfills Psalm twenty-two sixteen. And Jesus is given sour wine. Some of your translations might say vinegar. Sour wine by the guard. This sour wine wasn't some special sour wine. It was basically what we would call rot gut. It was just cheap crummy wine 
that was given to the soldiers in the Roman army. Just give them to the soldiers, kind of keep them happy. Remember the British Navy uh, used to give its sailors rum, keep them happy. So it's really crummy, crummy wine that they had access to, and that's what they gave them. Let's go back to chapter 2. What's the wine that Jesus gave at the, at the feast? It was the best, the best wine. And here he receives the poorest of wine. John is shouting something to us. Psalm 69, 21. For my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Again, it's prophetic. I just love, I love the journey where I'm discovering Christ all the way through the Old Testament. So Jesus is on the cross and he comes to that common place of humanity where there is thirst, loneliness, agony, shame, and ultimately death. And the poor wine, because John's shouting this, he's saying we just gave him rocket. He gave us the best and what did we give back to him? And it reminded me of Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My beloved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside, and he dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest of vines, and he built a watchtower in it, and he cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. I thirst is Jesus' cry, not just at that moment, but I believe his cry across all of time for his beloved. He is crying for his church, for his beloved, all the time. And so the question that I was asking myself, do I respond to his love and his longing for me with the best wine or with vinegar, with the poorest? Do I give him my best time? Do I give him my best heart? Do I give him my best attention? Because he longs for me. So Jesus was being crucified. Did you know this? I, I don't think I told you this last week. Jesus was being crucified at the very time that the Passover lambs were being slaughtered in the temple in preparation for the feast which would happen at sundown. Were you guys all aware of that? Yeah. So while he's on the cross, the priests are slaughtering the Passover lambs. So, that's why we get a detail from John. He says the soldier put the rot gut, the sour wine, and he put it on a hyssop and put it up so he could have a sip. Exodus 12:22 tells us that hyssop was to be used to sprinkle the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorposts mm -hmm. of the Israelites. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. Say that again. Hyssop, which is what the soldier used to give him the wine. Mm -hmm. Exodus 12.22 tells us that hyssop was what was to be used to sprinkle the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorposts. Mm -hmm. John's unbelievable. <laughs> He's incredible. And then it says, a, a, you know, a, a jar full of sour wine was sitting there. And he held it up to his mouth. <coughs> so, he has connected Mary and the beloved disciple John. And we just looked at all the levels of meaning and there's more. And then he says, okay, I'm thirsty. He was literally thirsty, but he would have been acutely aware of all the prophetic scriptures about the suffering lamb. And now he says that phrase that most of us know, it is finished. I use that phrase when I'm preaching the gospel out in villages. Tell them he, it's a completed job. It is accomplished, is another word for it is finished. 
completion of all that the Father gave him to do. Remember John 17, 4 we talked about? He said, I have completed all that Father gave me to do. And then it says that he, uh, he gave up his spirit. Actually, I, I should have looked here and see exactly what it says. He gave up his spirit. That's it. He gave up his spirit because it's really important. Literally in, in the Greek, he handed over his spirit. Isn't that interesting? When we say give up the ghost, that just means die. Right? My mother used to use that expression a lot. But he, this is way more subtle and more deliberate. He handed over his spirit. I think John is expressing that Jesus is, once again, in total control of all the events. Death cannot come to Jesus until he is ready. It's interesting in John's gospel, isn't it? There's a great calm. Jesus remains calm. He never loses sight that it was for this hour that I came. Remember in John 12, 27, he said that? We talked about that. It is finished. It is finished points back to the beginning of that last night. John 13. Remember when he's washing the disciples' feet? How does John introduce that episode? In verse 1. And he loved his own to the end. Isn't that interesting? He loved his own to the end. It is finished. And uh, so we've got bookends here. Another related word to finished, uh, it's just a variation on the same word, means consecration, priestly dignity, and total dedication to God. Isn't that rich? You know, I keep telling you, we, are, we just don't have English isn't as multidimensional as the Greek. Jesus has accomplished his full act of priestly consecration. He's offering himself in the final sense to the Father. When he says it is finished, it sums up the whole great mystery of the cross. And it replaces all other expressions, Old Testament, Old Covenant, Expressions It replaces them all as the one true glorification of the Father. It's a victory cry. When he says it is finished, it's a victory cry. It's declaring the defeat of the powers that be. It is the victory of total obedience to the Father's will. And then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. He delivered up his spirit. John seems to be using this phrase to perhaps suggest that Jesus handed over the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, to those at the foot of the cross. In, in John 7.39, he says that those who believe in him would receive the Holy Spirit. Maybe what John is suggesting here, this is a first fruit of that. We know that in, in uh, the next chapter, he's going to breathe on them to receive the Holy Spirit. We know that in Luke's account, there's going to be the, the, the Spirit coming down in Pentecost. So there's different expressions of this. But it's interesting because John could have very easily used different language that did not reflect this delivering over, giving over of his Spirit. I'd like to take a minute to tell you about a page from the Impact Nations Christmas Catalog that I'm particularly excited about this year. In the past, I've told you about our skills and business training programs. We're really passionate about helping the poor become self-sufficient. But sometimes, before we can get people trained, we have to simply rescue them from a dangerous situation. That's why one section of our Christmas Catalog is simply titled, Rescue a Life. In Uganda, we're working with partners to rescue pregnant teens from the streets of Kampala or from abusive homes. They're placed in a safe shelter where they receive the care and attention that they and their unborn children so desperately need. Through this year's catalog, you get to participate in their rescue. We need your help to pay for the medical bills related to their pregnancy. Once these young ladies have given birth to their beautiful, healthy babies, they can begin the process of getting trained up and prepared for the workforce. To get involved, please visit impactnations.com Christmas and check out the Rescue a Life section. And now, back to the podcast. 
The water and the blood flow from his side. I'm thinking about this a lot today. So we'll start at verse 31. Since it was the preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a special day. It was Passover coming. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and that their bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other one who had been crucified with him. And when they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. And he saw this had testified, uh, he who saw this has testified so that you may believe. His testimony is true. And he knows he is telling the truth. See the emphasis he's putting on this? For these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Also another scripture says, they will look at the one they pierced. By the way, they broke their bones. Not so much that the, the shock, they'd go into shock and die. But because uh, you could die from loss of blood, but really they usually suffocated. And, they, and the great pain with, with nailed feet was you had to lift yourself up to breathe. If your legs are broken, you can't, and they suffocate. Um, so they get to him, and he's dead, and they're amazed. And so they don't break his legs. What's going on? John is taking us back to the Passover lamb. Because we've got the Passover lambs being slaughtered at that same time. <coughs> We begin John's gospel with John the Baptist, John 1.29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. These words would have been obscure, I'm sure, to John and the others. Like, what's he talking about three and a half years earlier? But now he's looking, oh, and it's not obscure at all. <clears throat> According to Exodus 12.46, no bone of the lamb could be broken. When you eat the, the Passover meal, you can't have a broken bone. So John again is shouting that Jesus is the pure and the final Passover lamb. He's saying it's done. In Psalm 34:20 says, He protects all his bones, not one of them is broken. And we see here the paradox. Jesus has suffered greatly. But the Father, in the midst of the suffering, has guarded him, kept watch over him. Not one bone broken. Even when those around him suffered that fate, they were just ready to break his bones too. In the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the agony, his Father kept guard over him. Secondly, let's talk about the blood and the water. The piercing of Jesus' side is only found in John's Gospel, no other place. At a literal level, this was a dramatic way for John to show that Jesus was truly dead uh, when taken down from the cross. That's why he says, this is a true testimony. I'm a witness. Why? Because Gnosticism had started to rise up in its many forms. And it was saying, well, he wasn't really fully man. He wasn't really God. It was just his spirit. Some said it was a, he was an apparition. He's saying no. So at one level, the episode with the spear is to make it without a doubt and dramatically that Jesus was truly dead when he was taken down from the cross. He says this is a true testimony. And so what's John saying? Well, a lot of things, but... But I think one of them is, he's saying the real significance is not found at the visible material level, but its spiritual meaning. And let's delve into that for a couple of minutes. What came out was blood and water. Let's talk about the water first. In John 7.37, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come and drink. I'm out of me. Out of uh, out of him will flow rivers of living water. John 4, Jesus with the woman at the well. If you'd, have, if you'd known me who you're talking to, you would have asked and I would have given you living water. 
here's the multi-level. At one, at a kind of a literal, at that surface level, people are going, what's going on? Even as we read it. The one who said, out of me will flow rivers of living water, cries, I thirst. That's what's just happened, right? And you go, ah, is this thing failed, right? But at another level, the real level, the water flowing from Jesus' side is a picture and a confirmation that the Holy Spirit is about to be poured out on the earth because water and wind always represented the Spirit of God. In the blood, the water and the blood are really important symbols to John. Really important symbols. He also wrote, I think many of us know, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And 1st uh, John was written probably a little bit, a few years before John's Gospel. But I want to take us to 1st John 5, verses 6 to 8, because I want you to see how strong this is for John. That he doesn't let up on the significance of the, of the blood and of the water the water representing the Holy Spirit. So, starting at uh, verse 6 in 1 John 5. Jesus Christ, he is the one who came by the water and the blood, not by water only, but by water and by blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three are in agreement. Wow. He is just shouting this. The spiritual testimony is more powerful even than the eyewitness testimony, according to this passage. John is saying that now the Holy Spirit can be given because through his death, Jesus has, has regained his glory. He is with the Father, right? And before the world existed. He says, he asked for this from the Father the, the day before, the night before, John 17, 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The soldier's lance was meant to confirm his death, but it was the beginning of true life. All of life as we know changed. This is such a powerful, powerful image of the water and the blood. The drama of the cross does not end in death. John is telling us it continues in the flow of life from his side. For the church fathers, they believed that this spoke of the baptism of baptism and the Eucharist, Holy Communion. <clears throat> baptism is about new life. It's about dying with Jesus. You know, uh, Romans 6, <clears throat> powerful, I think the first 10 verses, powerful passage on baptism, and we're buried with him, we're raised with him. But it's, so baptism's about this new life of the Spirit. It's about, we die with him at the cross, but we're raised by the power of the Holy Spirit in a totally new life. He says, this is my blood in in the Last Supper, this is my blood which was poured out for you. This is the my blood of the new covenant, a whole new way. There doesn't need to be another Passover lamb. There doesn't need to be temple. There doesn't, it's done. All of these signs, he's shouting out through this narrative of the crucifixion. The church fathers also point to the creation of Eve from the side of Adam. It's really interesting. Church fathers do this early on. They saw in this outpouring of the water and the blood, the birth of the church, the creation of the new woman from the side of the new Adam. Isn't that interesting? Wow. And Paul talks clearly about the new Adam. <laughs> so let's move on to the next part. He finishes this passage by quoting Zechariah 12.10. They will look at the one they've pierced. In Zechariah, again, hundreds of years earlier, is describing what is happening with the women at the cross, who are at the foot of the cross. 
And he says, when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over firstborn. John presents this huge contrast between the mockery of the soldiers and the crowd and the contrast with the faithfulness and the deep, deep pain of these women. Right after this in Zechariah 13, 1, amazing verse here, on that day, and he's looking at the crucifixion, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And out of his side poured living water and the blood of the new covenant. Let's look at his burial. We're on the home stretch. We're going to be a little bit shorter tonight, I think. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus' body. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took his body away. Nicodemus, who had previously come to him at night, remember John 3? Uh, also came bringing a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. Then they took Jesus' body and wrapped it in linen cloths with the Aramic spices according to the burial custom of the Jews. There was a garden in the place where he was crucified. A new tomb was in the garden. No one had yet been placed in it. They placed Jesus there because of the Jewish preparation since the tomb was nearby. This is large, this last episode is largely paralleled in the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, it's mainly historical, I think, this last part. There's a little bit of symbolism, but less than we've come through tonight. He, he's dealing again, as I said, with the Gnostic belief that Jesus didn't bodily live or bodily die. And so John is stressing they laid him in a brand new tomb. Uh, typically, criminals were buried in a, a mass tomb, what we would now call a mass grave. Um, and he's saying this is not what happened. He was in a brand new tomb. So you got Joseph and Nicodemus. We've never heard of Joseph yet. Just shows up right now. And then Nicodemus, who we heard of once. If you look at the people that Jesus is with throughout the Gospels, all four, but let's, in, let's say John, he is often with the sick, the poor, the working class, the needy. We would all agree with that? Joseph and Nicodemus are introduced here. They represent another kind of believer because they come, uh, they're from the, the religious leaders, they're the, from the influential, um, they're the ones that, that have an influence on society. And they had been secret believers and we didn't know it. Jesus has been surrounded by mockers for the last 24 hours. Not quite 24, yeah, well, yeah, a little less. <laughs> Jesus has been surrounded by mockers, those who totally reject him. Now, John introduces the other Israel, the Israel who's been waiting for God's promises, the Israel who's truly been hoping that Jesus is the Messiah, who's been waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled. Jesus said, I, I quoted it earlier, John 12, 32, If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. John is showing us that this is already beginning to happen. That's why these two guys just show up from an entirely different class of people. The second bit of symbolism in this burial. He wrote of Jesus as a priest through the seamless tunic, Right? Now he returns to the king theme, which was very briefly implied with the sign. This is a royal burial with 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. Um, 
we have historical precedent of royalty being buried in that way. So the fact that he's buried as a king is a very, very appropriate ending to the Passion narrative. So let's try and <clears throat> tie this up. Tonight we look specifically at what John had to say about the crucifixion. That's, I, it was really hard for me, but I held myself to that. We didn't talk about the complete picture we have from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We didn't look at reconciliation, justification. We didn't look at atonement theories. I just looked at what John had to say. And it was a little bit hard. <laughs> but let's finish by considering a theme that we've talked about a lot. And that's the theme of paradox. In the midst of terrible violence and anger and hatred, in the midst of that environment, <clears throat> we see a transformation into love, tenderness, forgiveness. Out of death, John gives us the first indication that a whole new kind of life will come. It'll be indestructible, it'll be abundant. Jesus accepted pain and death. Chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus Hello. and Hello. <laughs> the soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns well, and put it on his head. That's a first, but that's good. <laughs> John accepted pain and death because he knew they were the Father's path to ultimate life for all. The mystery of the cross is that Jesus willingly descended into what seemed like failure. He embraced pain. He let himself be beaten and mocked and crucified. And this was the way to life for all of us. John 12, 25. <clears throat> Unless a kernel of wheat. Right? Remember that? Unless it is goes into the ground and is buried, it remains of itself alone, by itself alone. But if it, if it is buried, it bears much fruit. This was an incredible pain at every level, spiritual, emotional, physical. And he felt all of it, but he was never swallowed up by it. The powers threw everything at him. They moved through the religion. We watched this over the last several weeks. They moved through the religious system, the political system. They infiltrated the crowds till they became just in this mad frenzy. It was the work of the powers that be. The wrath of the powers and men in agreement with them is what put Jesus on the cross. I believe that with all my heart. It was the powers and and mankind moving in agreement with them that put him on the cross. And he always knew this would happen. Jesus never fought back. He absorbed all that Satan and the powers could hurl at him. He absorbed it and he never fought back. And this was his victory over the powers and Satan and death itself. And I've shared that in different times through this whole series. Canonic love. He never fought back. That is the way. The way. Capital W. That is the way of following Jesus. Now I said that I think somehow we've moved a little bit too far away from Mary. And I think we could use some balance there. Also I think as evangelicals we move too quickly from the crucifixion to the resurrection. The mystery and the paradox of the cross are in a lot of ways, there's just too much tension there. It's too painful. And, and so we move, we, we move almost entirely into the resurrection. And yet we need to hold the two in tension. And I really encourage you to contemplate the cross and to find Christ in the cross and not hurry away from the cross so I thought I'd finish a little differently tonight and tonight I gave you just a lot of there's so much 
symbolism and theology in there, I didn't pull back and talk so much about application. But I'm going to ask you to just relax. You might want to close your eyes. I'm going to simply read Isaiah 53, which was written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before. And like Psalm 22, he was getting a download, a clear picture of what would happen on Golgotha. So let's, uh, let me read it and just let it go into our spirits. And I think that's how we'll finish tonight. <clears throat> Who has believed what we've heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others. A man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. And as one from whom others hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him of no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. Yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole and by his bruises we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray we have all turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all he was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By a perversion of justice, he was taken away. Who could have imagined his future? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain. When you make his life an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. Through him the will of the Lord shall prosper. Out of his anguish he shall see light. He shall find satisfaction through his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out himself unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Whew. Let me just go back so we have something to think about. As I was walking earlier, I was just thinking of these five episodes and what John has structured so that we would get a greater revelation of what happened at the cross. The first, again, was the royal inscription declared as king in all the languages <coughs> of the people. The second was the seamless tunic. The same tunic as the high priest. The third, he gives his mother to John. And we see Mary and John. We see, we see the mother and we see the disciple following. Fourthly, it is finished. It is complete. It is accomplished. And in the midst of that, he thirsts. And like the Passover lamb with the blood on the door, he was given poor wine when he only gave us the best wine. And fifthly, the water and the blood flowed from his side. The spirit, cleansing, new covenant, abundant life.
Well, that concludes another episode of the Impact Nations podcast. If you've got questions for us, send them to podcast at impactnations.com. And please consider how you and your family might rescue a life this Christmas season. Visit impactnations.com slash Christmas to learn more. Thanks, and have a great week. Thank you.